We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we're going through the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke is basically the story of Jesus according to Luke. And so Luke is telling us a story, and really he's not talking to us. He's talking to a guy by the name of Theophilus. I know I mention this every week, but I want to keep it in front of you because Luke says that he is going to talk about, he's going to show this guy Theophilus uh, all the things that happened, all the things that happened throughout Jesus' life. And so he's investigated very seriously all the things that Jesus has done, and he wants Theophilus to see this. And so he's working like an investigative reporter. He's telling him this story. And so he's talked to a lot of people. Luke himself wasn't an, eye, an eyewitness, but he's speaking to eyewitnesses, witnesses, and he's also talking with other uh, uh, gospel writers and things like that, most likely throughout the period that he is writing this. Now, uh, what we're seeing here is one of the most, for me, it may not be confusing to you, I don't know, uh, but for me, this is one of the most confusing passages um, that I that I that I read, and the reason is is because there there's just kind of some stuff in here that just like, who is John the Baptist, and what what's his relation uh, to Jesus, and how does this work, and why is he baptizing people, and that's not the same baptism as Jesus baptism, and and oh man, it's just it's so confusing exactly how it works, and so I'm going to do my best to make this as clear as possible. Uh, for you in the midst of this. Let me just tell you at the outset here is that there's, there's at least there's two Johns in the New Testament. There's John the Baptist, and then there's John the Apostle, or a disciple of Jesus, um, often referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so that's John the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, uh, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then also Revelation. Now, uh, so that's John the Apostle. We are talking today about John the Baptist. You may not know this, but John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist is, is a guy, he is a forerunner of Jesus. He's going ahead of him, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. And so he's on the scene for a very short time in the beginning. So the, there's two different Johns here. So if you're not aware of that, that's okay. I didn't for a long time, an embarrassingly long time in my life as a, as a, as a kid. And so um, the Lord has uh, blessed me with that knowledge now. So uh, Luke chapter 3, we're going to get in there right now. And I'm in the book of John. Luke, that is the wrong. There we go. Okay. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteraria uh, and Trachonitis, and... Lysanias. All right. That's exactly how you pronounce that, by the way. Okay. Let's see. I did not, I meant to practice that before I got up here. Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zebedee, I'm sorry, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now, let me just stop right there. I think I'm just going to walk through this. I was going to read the whole thing. I think it's going to confuse you too much. We're just going to get going right here. Now, Luke is talking to Theophilus, who's a, an official somewhere. He's a high-up guy who kind of understands 
uh, history and he understands what was, what was happening here. And so Luke is speaking to this guy and he wants to locate when this story happened. And this story happened during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. The five different guys that we're talking about here. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, who's a governor of Judea. Herod, who's a tetrarch of Galilee. He's basically a leader of a fourth of the kingdom. That's what a tetrarch is of Galilee. His brother Philip of the region of Iteria, and then Trachonitis, and then Lysianus of Abilene. So there's five rulers right there, five guys who are involved in government. And so he's very much locating during this period of time, this is what happened. Now what we know is that these guys uh, ruled, and primarily uh, Tiberius Caesar, uh, during that time period, uh, the time period was, I should say, was AD, uh, 27, between AD 27 and 29 in the month of August. So ju just so you know, that's when this happened. AD 27 to 29, somewhere in there is where we're talking about right here, which is quite interesting. And then he goes into these high uh, priests. So we have Annas and Caiaphas. And so uh, you have these two guys that really weren't two priests, but one of them had been priest, and he was still kind of a priest, but he wasn't really. And so he's basically saying it was during this period of time. And then he says the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, the reason why that's important is this, is that we have all of these officials who are high up. And if you were to like take this drone footage and fly through the palace and then you're the, the governor's mansion and then you were to go through all of these parts of the world in these uh, beautiful places where these governors are and, and so forth. And then you were to go into these, the, 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 the temple and you see these high priests and all the pomp that's going on with them and all of this stuff. And then you kind of take a hard left and you go out further, 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 further. Pretty soon you're outside of the city limits. Now you're into the desert and there's this wilderness area and there's, then there's this guy who is dressed in camel's hair, it says in the book of Matthew. He's got a leather belt around his waist. Uh, he's not very well kempt. Uh, his personal hygiene may have been an issue. We're not entirely sure. Did not wear deodorant, ate bugs, all of that kind of stuff. So we're going through all of these nice places and then we take a hard left. We go out to the wilderness to this guy, John, and he is out in the wilderness and it says, it didn't come to Caesar. It didn't come to this guy. It didn't come to that guy. It didn't come to the priest. It came to a guy who's out in the middle of nowhere and the word of God came to this guy, John. So that's important. So he's trying to say, in some sense, to Theophilus that like, this is the least expected guy in the least expected place, dressed in the least expected way that the word of God would come to. Now, the, the other reason why this is important is that John is, what it's saying about John there is that John is a prophet. Now, he kind of denies being a prophet, but he really is a prophet. And he's a prophet because he's a continuation of the Old Testament prophets. So it's about right here that the Old Testament ends, even though we obviously are reading out of the New Testament. It's right here that the Old Testament ends. And John the Baptist is the last prophet. And the word of God comes to him, a phrase that is used of the Old Testament prophets, that the word of God comes to them and then they begin to speak. And what, is, and what happens here? So he's in the wilderness. Verse 3 says, And he went to all the region around the Jordan. And what was he doing? And he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is proclaiming 
that there is this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he, he has a message, and the message is basically saying that repentance needs to happen uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and that baptism is the proof of that. That baptism is the proof that that would take place. So it says this then, verse 4, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now what in the world is that saying? Well, that saying is this. It's a quote from the, uh, the book of Isaiah. It's talking about saying, it's saying this, that there's this guy who's going to come and he's a voice of the one, of one in the wilderness. He is the one who's in the wilderness and he is speaking the word of God. And what is he going to tell them? He is going to tell them about this idea of preparing the way of the Lord to make his path straight. Why is that important? It's important because of this. When a king comes to town, you straighten the road. When a king comes into town and he is, uh, I, I don't know if you could think of what's that uh, uh, make way for King Ali, that song out of the, uh, what is it, what, Aladdin, there we go, yeah, how did I forget that? Okay, make way for King Ali, you know, that whole thing. You know, imagine that whole, uh, you know, shenanigan there and them coming into town on this tiny road and then there's potholes in it and they're, you know, all that type of stuff. Imagine a king who's coming into town, like you wanna make that road be really awesome. Like there's no potholes in the driveway at the White House. Like this, is, this needs to be a wide highway because he has guards and people and people with horns and all kinds of other things that are happening here. And so what this is saying, there's a king and he's coming. And has the way been prepared for him? And John is going to be the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And so every hill is going to be lowered. Every valley is going to be brought up. The road that's crooked is going to become straight. There's going to be none of these switchbacks going up and down this hill. I went to Glacier National Park this last uh, summer with my, my family. And the switchbacks on that are just crazy. But there's going to be none of that. It's going to be this straight highway. John is coming to bring a straight highway for these people. And who are these people? These people are God's people, the Jews. So the Jews are sitting here. They've been in church most of their life. They know all about the temple. They, they're very religious people. They come from a religious family. They have been doing this for ages and ages and ages, and so they're just, they're kind of getting comfortable, and they're kind of doing their thing, but what John has been sent to do is to prepare the way of the Lord, and he is going to prepare it by bringing them a message, and this message is going to come in the form of a sermon that's coming right now, and that sermon says this, and he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, I want to give you five points that are going to make your life better. Here is the way to success. Here is your best life now. Here is how to have a better marriage. Here is how to be a better person. Here is how, I mean, no, that's not what John's going to do. 
John's not going to give a three-point sermon with a poem. God's, John's going to give a one-point sermon that says this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Holy cow. Like, that's the opening line of his sermon. I considered opening my sermon with, you're a bunch of snakes. <laughs> who warned you that you needed a savior? But that's how he starts a sermon, and he says, you're a bunch of snakes. The only reason why you're running is because you think that there's wrath that's coming, and you're, you're just a snake. Now, I've heard some bad sermons, and I know for a fact that you also have heard some bad sermons, all right? But that, when you look at it, looks like a really, really, really bad sermon. It looks like a bad sermon because it starts out with just all condemnation. You're a snake. You're a snake. Why does John do that? He's coming uh, to make a path that's straight for the Lord. Every hill is going to be lowered. Every valley is going to be brought up. There's going to be no switchbacks. And he's coming to do this. And the way that he starts a sermon is by being offensive. By being offensive. Are you offended by God? Have you ever been offended by God? If you haven't, I wonder whether you are saved. If you have not been offended by God, then I wonder if you are saved. Let me keep going. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, what did he just say there? He said, you're acting like you're repentant, but there's no fruit from that. Like you live your life like you are a religious person, but the truth is, is that you don't have anything to show for that. Like you're, you're a part of some religious system of some sort or another, and then I kind of think that John, considering how defensive he is, or not defensive, but offensive, he is, is kind of saying this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't even start with the soul, we have Abraham as our father, because that's a joke. That's a joke that you would say that Abraham is your father and think that on some level or another, that because you grew up with the right pedigree, because you grew up in this family, because you've been going to this church, because, 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 because you're a part of American Christianity, because you're, uh, you're in this thing, because of that, don't even think for a second that on some level that you have true forgiveness from God just because you grew up in the right place and you have the right pedigree. Because here's the thing, God is able to take stones and create children for himself. Well, why is that important? It's because Israel believes that they are God's chosen people. We're the chosen ones. We're just kind of rolling in, just mailing it in. We got this. It's in the bag. Salvation is, is going to happen. There's no question about it, so we don't really need to worry about this. And John says, hey, don't even think that for a second. Don't even think for a second that because 
you prayed a prayer or because you had Christian parents or because you think that you like God or because whatever it is, don't even, don't even think like that because God is able to take stones and make children for himself. See, there, there may be people in here that didn't grow up in the church. In fact, I know that there are. There's people in here that, that did not grow up in the church. They don't think that they're a Christian. They know that they're not. There's people around us that think to themselves, I did not grow up as Christian, so therefore I am not Christian. See, religion is so oftentimes tied to our family. I didn't grow up as a Christian, and so therefore I'm not a Christian, and I could never be because my family isn't, or because I didn't grow up this way, or because I've never done this or done that. There's a promise in there, and the promise is this, is that God doesn't need your stinking pedigree. In fact, it's more of a detriment than a help. You may be in a better spot than anyone else in this room. You may be in a better spot than anyone else because God can take stones and he can make children for himself. You feel like a stone? Do you feel like a stone today? Are you in a place where you feel like, I got nothing? All I got is a bunch of baggage of a bunch of crap that I know that I've done. I know how I've harmed people. I know how I've lied. I know how I've cheated. And God's able to take stones. And he's able to make children for himself. Or you may be somebody who's just like, I don't feel it. I don't sense it. I don't understand it. I don't really want to be a part of that. But God is able to make a child out of you who is a stone, a hard-hearted stone who doesn't have a relationship with God and doesn't really even want it. God's able to soften the hardest heart. He can take your heart of stone and he can give you a heart of flesh. In fact, that's exactly what he does when he makes you a Christian. He does it with the power of his Holy Spirit. He comes into your life and he changes who you are. God's able to do that with you. There's a promise rooted in this incredibly offensive message. Have you been offended by him? Have you been offended? See, these, these folks' problem is that there is no real fruit in line with the fact that they say that they've repented. In fact, there's people that are coming out to be baptized, and what's happening is that they're just coming to be baptized. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll do this ritual. And yet there's no life change that happens as a result. And the caution that John has is, is a very real caution. Now, the, the Scripture nowhere teaches that you lose your salvation. But what it does teach is that when there is no fruit, then you need to be aware of that. In fact, the next verse, it says this, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This goes along with uh, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, which, uh, which says this. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. It's a caution. It's an offensive caution. That says this. It says, does your profession of repentance align with your life? Do you say that you are a Christian and yet you do not sit underneath God? In fact, you believe in some sense that you are over God. And in some sense, you don't believe that you're responsible to God. In some sense, you might believe that God is responsible to you. And we prove that with the way that we live. We prove that with the way that we live when we are not paying attention to our lives and seeing, okay, a life of repentance is poured out in these ways. We prove that with the way that we live. John is getting at some people here who've been doing the religious thing for a long time and yet don't have real repentance. He says, you got to bear fruit. There needs to be fruit that's there. And the question is, do you and I have fruit? And this is what the crowds ask. It says in verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Okay, you look at your life and you say, Okay, I don't have fruit that is in line with repentance. I don't have the, the fruit of that. And John responds with this, verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So it begins with this. It begins with, man, it begins with a generosity of spirit. It begins with the reality, for them, Jesus hadn't come yet, but they're looking forward to the death of Christ. They're looking forward to the hope, the forgiveness that is found in Christ. That's what John's baptism is. It's looking forward to the hope of Christ. You and I, and in our baptism, are looking back to the hope of Christ. And so what he's saying is, he's saying here, those who have truly repented have placed themselves under God are people whose lives begin to change. And their lives begin to change in really a, a very specific way. And that is that there's all of a sudden this incredible generosity that comes out of them. There's an incredible level of generosity that comes as they begin to say, I have more than I need. I have more than one tunic or whatever it is. And I have food to spare, and so I can give. There's a generosity of spirit that's coming from them. And then there's tax collectors who also came to be baptized. A tax collector is somebody who's been designated by the, the government in that region to take taxes. They come to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And as he's saying these things, the, the truth is that you and I both know that like my repentance needs to be shown 
through my life, like if I truly believe that God has a moral law and that it stands and that it's real and, and therefore I must be repentant, but then he begins to walk through this stuff and I realize, man, I haven't been generous with the things that God has given me. And the truth is, is that I have collected more than I was authorized to do. I did cheat on my time card. I did cheat on my taxes. I did overbill for something. I did, I did do these things. And John is pointing out here, walking out your repentance is looking at your life and living in righteousness towards your fellow man. It's displaying the forgiveness and grace that God has given you in your everyday life. And John says, if that's not present, then what's really going on in your life? So soldiers came to him and asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Isn't it funny how all three of these things really deal with money? All three of them really deal with our finances. So what, what we can say about that is this, is that you want to know where you are with God? How are you with sharing? How are you with integrity when it comes to your finances? How are you when it comes to uh, your generosity how are you when it comes to when your money when your wages are threatened how do you respond how do you respond see john is pointing something out in your life and in my life which is that money means more to us than we really believe that it does money has become our god we live in the u.s of a we have hard hearts we believe that we have been in this religion for a while because we live in a nation that has, as a quotation, in God we trust. Perhaps we grew up in a Christian home or we went to church at some point in our life or we prayed a prayer or we did something like that. But the truth is, is that it hasn't touched. The generosity of God has not even touched our lives. And we can see it sometimes in the way that we live. We really are a bunch of snakes. We really are a group of people that we just want to get out of the wrath of God, which is a very real thing. And we don't really want to have to walk in line with that profession of faith. We really are a bunch of snakes. And John's pointing that out in their life, and he's pointing it out in my life, and he's pointing it out in your life. And the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that kind of thing? There's this uh, quote that my wife told me about uh, just this morning from Mere Christianity. From C.S. Lewis, he says, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. 
it is after you, it is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand that Christ, uh, what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we get into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law, and yet also a person, that's Jesus. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes man to save man from the disapproval of God. See, C.S. Lewis is pointing at something here, which is this, is that there's a moral law and you and I have broken it. I'm a snake, you're a snake. Every, everything that, we, that we're doing oftentimes is so much motivated by, I, I just kind of want to be right with God, but I don't really want to recognize his moral law that I'm accountable to him, that I'm responsible to him to how I've acted. I'm responsible to him for the way that I live. And it's until I see that, it's until I know that, and this is why John is the forerunner of Jesus himself, is that John has come to show us one thing. There can be no conversion without conviction. Warren Wearsby said that. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Like if you don't have a conviction that you have violated God's law, I don't know how you get saved. It can't happen. John the Baptist has to come prepare the way of the Lord in my heart and in your heart to straighten the road and to make the wide path. And what is that? It is the realization that without conviction, there can be no conversion in your life. Do you have conviction? Or have you been lulled to sleep through Christian songs and everyday churchianity? Have you been lulled to sleep by lackluster friends that don't care about who Jesus is and what he's done. They don't call you to account. And to say, say this, hey Matt, you're not walking in line with the gospel. You don't believe the gospel because you just hang on to everything that you have. You're never sharing. Or you're cheating your boss. Or you've cheated your customer. See, we get lulled to sleep in this way and we come to a place where we say, you know what, everything's okay. At one point or another, I had a relationship with God that was pretty robust. You might even believe in eternal security. You might even say, hey, I don't believe I'll ever lose my salvation, and I don't either. But my question is, if you can live like that, were you ever saved in the first place? By their fruit, you will recognize them. Your fruit and my fruit oftentimes is not good fruit. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is there conviction over that? Or have you been lulled to sleep through American Christianity, through intellectual assent, through the idea that you can just do whatever you want and you don't live in accountability to God? And I don't live in accountability to God during those times. I don't live as though I'm responsible to him. 
John is here to prepare the way of the Lord. Has the way of the Lord been prepared in your heart? Has the way of the Lord been prepared in your heart? See, our, our world just has a major problem with conviction. Has such a major problem with it because on, on some level, it just gets, the idea of conviction and condemnation gets abused by cult religions. They use it to control people. They use it to control people and they basically say, if you've sinned, if you've done anything wrong and you don't tell us right now, you're, you're in trouble. Or if you even step out of line, there's no grace there. There's no mercy there. There's no nothing there. There's no mercy for that stuff. It's just there's no forgiveness. That's the way that it is. That's not, you're, you're, you're hopeless. And in some sense, they're right. Like if you have sinned, you are hopeless without Jesus Christ. The problem is they leave out the Jesus Christ part. How many cult religions talk about God, think that Jesus is a good person, but they leave out Jesus Christ? Why do they leave out Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ brings grace. Jesus Christ brings mercy. Jesus Christ brings forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection. Why do you lop off Jesus Christ as God himself in the flesh? Why did Jehovah's Witness do that? It is so that you can be beholden to them for, for your sin. It is so that they can control you. It is so that you have no grace, no mercy in your life. It is so that you will do whatever it takes so that your religious leaders will tell you, okay, now you're okay. You've done enough for me, and now you can go, now you can go to the afterlife. See, Jesus Christ is the one that brings grace and mercy to our lives. That is why they chop off Jesus, off of the gospel, and which is no gospel at all. And so these people, verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. These people are sitting there and they're just going, they're hearing this message and they're hearing this message and they're saying, dude, you've got to be the Messiah. You've got to be the anointed one of God. You've got to be the one who's, you've brought the conviction, so you must be God. See, all of us believe that this God figure is just going to bring conviction, and he's not going to bring anything else. He's just going to bring conviction. He's going to make us feel bad, and once he makes us feel bad, then we can come to a place of maybe acceptance with him. So they think he's the Christ. John does an amazing thing. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire which is another bit of the wrath of God there. And then the next verse I love. So with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Oh, I'm getting thrown into the fire. That sounds like good news. It's really the bad news that brings us to the good news. See, John says, there's somebody mightier than I who's coming. 
Are you the Christ? Nope, there's somebody who's coming. See, John's pointing forward to Jesus, Jesus Christ. John's, John's paving the way for him. He says, there's one who's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy uh, to untie his sandals, which is a way of saying I'm a sl I'm, I, I am pretty much a slave in comparison to him. He says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, meaning he's going to bring the Holy Spirit to enable you to live, which is our main problem. Our main problem is this, is that we don't have conviction, and then when we do get conviction, we don't have the ability to carry out that conviction. See, because my problem is, is that I can look at my life all over and I can say, man, I'm repentant, but the truth is that sometimes I feel like I can't carry it out. I can't carry out the reality that like, man, uh, I've, I've got this problem in my life and I can't seem to do what's right. Everybody has areas like that in their life. John says, listen, he's going to baptize you with something else. It's not my baptism that's going to be ultimate and final for you. My baptism is just a ritual that you're going to go through that just says, hey, I want forgiveness and I want to say that I'm going to live that out in repentance. He says, Jesus is coming with a different baptism, and that is that the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and this fire, which is this judgment, this conviction. The fire is going to come into our life, and it's going to purify us. See, fire comes in to purify a metal that has impurities in it. Jesus brings the Holy Spirit, which convicts us of sin, and purifies us. He purifies us on a regular basis. It's not all at once. But then it says this in verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. See, John was so powerful his message was so abrupt that there was nobody that was outside of his sphere of bringing conviction to he says to herod he says herod you should not be uh sleeping with herodias who is your brother's wife like that's wrong you shouldn't have done that and so herod is very angry with this and ultimately he ends up having him put to death but john says this to him and then it says in verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, what? Wait a second. See, this baptism is about saying this, hey, I repent. I'm a sinner. I have done wrong things and I want the forgiveness of God. But it says here, it says it just very briefly in the, the book of Luke and other uh, Gospels, it, it talks about it more. But it says, and now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus subjected himself to baptism. It says later in the book of Luke, it says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 actually. Quoting from the Old Testament, Luke brings this up and it says this, that this is what Jesus is doing right here. Jesus willingly takes a baptism that is not his own. He doesn't need that baptism because he is God in the flesh. 
He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is completely righteous. And so what we see from this is, is this, that Jesus himself subjects himself to the very thing that we need to be subjected to. And what it is, it's just a precursor of this. It's a precursor of the reality that Jesus goes to the cross. He begins with this baptism, and he ends with his crucifixion, and finally his resurrection and ascension. But Jesus subjects himself to the very thing that we need. See, here's the deal. If you and I are honest, when John goes through that list of sins, like, hey, if you got two tunics, give one away. If you got more than enough food, give it to other people. If you are somebody who uh, adds a little bit uh, too much to your time card, if you're somebody who's ever cheated in that way, you're... You're busted. You're in trouble. That's, that shouldn't be happening anymore. But when you and I, when we really look at that, there's just more conviction. There's more conviction because in, in every single one of our callings, in every single one of our, our lifestyles, in every single one of our, the ways that we live, there's a way that we are tempted to do what's wrong. And if you and I are honest, the truth is, is that like, if that's what the standard is, if the moral standard is from God that I don't screw up and that my repentance is dependent upon uh, the fact that I need to do what's right, if that's what it's dependent on, then I am completely hosed. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. Jesus was baptized just like everyone else in order to bring you the forgiveness that you need. In order to bring you the forgiveness that you need in every moment, in every area of life, Jesus is baptized not just to, to bring you forgiveness, but to bring you enablement, to give you the ability to say no or to say yes. Because he, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is brought into our lives and empowers us to do what is right. Jesus subjected himself to the very thing that we need, the very thing that we are owed, the death that we should have died. He took the wrath of God that is impending on me and is impending upon you, the wrath of God that we deserve. Don't you realize, fellow snakes, that you deserve the wrath of God? Don't you realize that you deserve the wrath of God for all of your mistakes, for all of your sins. You may have been walking for some time in a way that just says, I don't even care about where I'm at. Jesus went to the cross for that. You may have been walking your entire life without a care in the world about who God is or what he's done, but in this moment you're realizing this, that he is over you and you are not over him, that you are responsible to him. And he went to the cross for that. And he went to the cross for whatever it is that you bring up today. As you say, I don't think that I've walked in repentance. I don't think that I've walked in this way that I, that I should be walking. And the reality is that sin too. Oh, and that sin too. Oh, and that sin too. And now 
as you walk out this repentance in your life, you get to rejoice in the reality that Jesus went to the cross for you. It's that old hymn say, I need thee every hour. Every hour of your life. That phrase alone is convicting to me. I get home from work, which is at the church, by the way, and sometimes I ask myself, did I need him every hour? And for me, like needing him every hour is, is, is essentially saying, like, like, am I looking to him to speak to me? Am I looking to him to guide my behavior? Am I looking to him to guide my conversations with my wife or with my kids? Am I looking to him in the way that I'm spending my finances? Am I looking to, I need him every hour, and yet I, and yet I didn't, or I haven't at times, more regularly than I would like to even admit as a pastor. And the truth is, is that Jesus went to the cross for that sin of not needing him. Jesus went to the cross for the reality that you don't look for his forgiveness. Jesus went to the cross that, for the, the reality that you didn't even care what he thought. And he died willingly for you. And you and I get to realize that. See, there can be no conversion without conviction. Do you sense the conviction of God? And if so, then there is a path that has been widened. And every valley is going to be brought down through the work of Jesus Christ. Or every hill is going to be brought down. Every valley is going to be brought up. And that road's going to be straightened because Jesus went to the cross for you and you are going to see his salvation. Put your trust in Jesus Christ by saying today with your head, with your heart, with your hands, that Jesus, I trust you. I repent of my sin. I realize that I deserve your wrath, but I see that you went to the cross for me and I want to walk in that reality, in that forgiveness. I encourage you, I implore you to do so today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning for for those of us that don't sense a conviction in our life in, in some area, or really, or maybe not at all, that, Lord, that we would realize that your, your word is true and that it means what it says and that we must obey you. So, Lord, Lord I pray that we would submit to your rule and your reign and, Lord, that we would truly repent, that we would turn from our sin and look at your forgiveness on the cross as a result. Lord, may we not see this as something that we're doing ourselves, but that you have done for us on the cross and you've made a way for us to be forgiven. Lord, that begins through your conviction in our lives and us responding with repentance. So we thank you for the ability to do so, enabled to us by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that. Lord, I pray that you'd awaken dead people in this room. 
Lord, I pray that you'd awaken Christians that are really just kind of hard soil right now. Lord, there's so many of us in this room at different times, maybe even throughout the week, in different ways throughout our life, that, Lord, that this has been true of us. So, Lord, would you work on our lives? Would you work on our hearts? Would you work on our minds and enable us to experience your conviction, your grace, and your mercy? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Every, every week we come together to, to not just sing worship songs and to not just hear a sermon, um, but this whole thing has been a worship service. And worship continues, not just in singing, but in the way that we worship Jesus Christ on the cross. He's off the cross now, but we worship what he's done for us 